Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. Dearest gentle listener, as the season is upon us, all the elegant individuals of the town await news regarding their beloved queen. With scandalous fabrications confusing even the most learned of our fair society, we feel it is our duty to distinguish aspersion and misrepresentation from veracity in the tale of this 18th century matriarch. In many regards, we assure you, the fact is as dramatic as the fiction. Very truly yours, the Ladies Vallenham. The end. Let's talk about Queen Charlotte. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1761, the first life insurance policy in North America was written in Philadelphia. It was year five of the global conflict that we know as the Seven Years' War. Lady Mary Wortley Montague headed back to London for a final time after years of living abroad. Ruling the world, Louis XV, Charles III of Spain, And the Habsburgs, specifically the only woman Habsburg to rule, Maria Theresa. Grand Duchess Catherine was months and one rebellion away from becoming Empress Catherine. She was great. Sybil Ludington, revolutionary horse-riding teen, Henry Shrapnel, artillery inventor, and the future Madame Tussaud were all born— And in 1761, a young foreign princess, defying the expectations of odds makers across Europe, found herself Queen of England. Duchess Sophia Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz was born on May 19, 1744, in the town of Miro, in the Duchy of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. Let's see, up on the upper right of Germany, if you're looking at a map, near but not touching Poland. (laughs) but not touching the Baltic Sea, just north of modern-day Berlin is where she was born. She was the eighth of the ten children of Duke Charles Louis Frederick of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, known as Carl to his friends and family, and (laughs) Princess Elizabeth Albertina of Saxe-Hildburghausen. They, the parents, were styled the Prince and Princess of Mirau because... Our subject's uncle was the one that was the ruler, not her papa. Papa was the youngest of the three children of the reigning Duke of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. So our papa was heading the junior branch of the family. His own father had died when he was just a baby, and he inherited significant but small properties. At that time, his widowed mother raised him there, and later he went to university in neighboring Pomerania, where the dogs come from. (laughs) I'm laughing because I wrote exactly the same thing. In Pomerania, where the dogs come from. (laughs) He uh, blew by the army, waving like one does a glass toward the bottle of vermouth. Hello, army. And then he just settled in to raise his 10 kids and manage his lands. His marriage was one of those minor dynastic marriages 
She was Elizabeth Albertine, and like Papa, she didn't grow up with great financial wealth, although they had a high social standing, which must make a very complicated youth. We have these expectations for you that cost all this money, and we can't quite do them, so this is what we're going to do instead. Mama Elizabeth's father had plans of grandeur, but he was not a great money manager, and he drained his treasury so far that he even tried to sell his wife's inherited land without her permission to raise funds. Now, Mama was the great-granddaughter of the Duke of Saxe-Gotha, the future house of Queen Victoria's husband, Albert. Great-grandpa had died and his lands got divided among his seven sons. So Mama is the granddaughter of the sixth son, who was also a duke. And I was cracking up reading all these names and things, thinking about when we covered the Gilded Age heiresses. Now, Americans were relatively unsophisticated when it came to suitors from France and Germany in particular. Because when you got a duke and he was British, you got one of those 20, whatever, seven guys that had the title, had the lands, had the money. You knew you got the guy, right? But (laughs) you could not swing a cat in Germany or France without hitting a duke in the face. (laughs) And that didn't always mean what it meant in Britain. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right, right, right. Oh, you could be a prince or a princess and really have nothing. Right. She was the brains really in the close-knit Mecklenburg-Strelitz Jr. branch. Her husband was this um, bluff, amiable dude, but she had most of the star power when it came to the the thinking. And part of that big thinking was something that her husband agreed. They were determined and successful to live a very quiet family and faith-centered home with their five children, three boys, two girls. A Lutheran minister was the primary tutor of the kids. He taught both the boys and the girls French, European history, geography, arts, botany, mineralogy. Mineralogy? Mineralogy? Those last two, and the sciences in general, were subjects that really interested our Charlotte for her entire life. And the foundation was set in that very relaxed, family-centered environment. No, it was a beautiful place to grow up. I have seen it in my reading compared to Rivendell from Lord of the Rings. Now, I've seen the house. It's, It's big, but it's not elven, if you know what I mean. Like, it's big, like a nice old courthouse in a relatively small town. Right. (laughs) Charlotte's parents, though, were affectionate and involved in their children's lives. Not always a given in this day and age, certainly. Even, I think this is actually kind of touching, all members of the family, even the men, were adept and almost nerdily good at needlework. Mm -hmm. I mean, both simple sewing, like shirts, and whatnot, and also embroidery. And that later boggled British minds to the point where they almost didn't understand what was happening. Right. And also the freedom that the Germans felt to express love or or joy. And we actually saw the remnants of that when we were reading Little Women. Even Louisa May Alcott gave Professor Bear, like referred to him as that, quote, sentimental German. Mm-hmm. You know, nowadays, you don't think of... That's not the stereotype. You think of people on TikTok yelling Lippenstift instead of yeah. lipstick or whatever. <laughs> right, right. Well, their family was the first family locally. They were responsible for those less fortunate in their immediate area. 
as aristocracy has been throughout time immemorial, but they were pretty obscure on a continental level, if you know what I mean. True. But in their community, they were a big deal. And the fact that the whole family is doing things to help that community, our Charlotte especially, she just loved that level of philanthropy, you know, going into the village and finding people who need help and just helping them. The entire family really relish their time with their community out in the village, doing what they can to help other families and other people who had needs along. And our Charlotte, that was one of the highlights of her life, is being able to connect with these people and and help them. They were part of the Holy Roman Empire and all of its families, historically connected to more important houses all over the place. But Charlotte's early childhood was spent in what I would call Rustic Harmony. Hooray! Charlotte's Rustic Harmony ended about the age of eight to a certain degree. Her father died. He was just 44 years old. Immediately upon the death of their father, Charlotte's brother Adolphus, aged only 13 years of age, became their uncle's heir apparent instead of their father. He also immediately, upon the very second his father took his last breath, became the Prince of Mirau. And surely there would be time to prepare the young man for his unexpected new roles? Surely, no, au contraire. Six months after the loss of their father, their uncle also passed away, and Mama was the legal regent for her minor son in two duchies. Charlotte's older brother, now Duke, and... Charlotte's mother was his regent, so they all moved to the capital. The fact is that 14 was the age of majority in this case. So <laughs> you and I and all of Mecklenburg Strelitz, if left to my son's devices, would have been eating tater tots and Freddy's fry sauce for every meal. And we never would have showered. And the whole place would have been extremely stinky and grumpy. So I, I, I. I mean, these are people that aren't even halfway to getting their frontal cortexes fully developed, and yet they're in charge of whole kingdoms. That's a red flag. Mm -hmm. Other people thought the same thing, like, oh, ho, a tiny little dude with his nice, cute little mama are going to pretend to run this country. And they raised their heads like a dog smelling some delicious bacon. No, said George II of England, who, after all, was the king of Hanover. Also, he said, there will be no shuffling of boundaries. We are going to leave it all as it is. You're not going to oppress this woman and her son, who is the legal heir. You're going to leave it alone or you're going to have the hammer coming to you. From me, the end. Can we just not leave it for five minutes? I know. And that's just like politics. Even taking politics out of it, I mean, the father and the uncle both died in this family in a very short period of time. I mean, that's traumatic. It's a testament, I think, to Duchess Elizabeth that the household remained tight, mm -hmm. you know, and together. The siblings were very, very close. Well, the education of the girls was handed over to a family friend of Elizabeth's. That would be Madame de Grabeau. She was a poetress known as the German Sappho. And Sappho is an ancient Greek poetess. She's from the Isle of Lesbos. There's not much that's known about her, which is one, probably one of the reasons why we haven't covered her. But this very learned woman was taking over the education of the girls. One of her other specialties, in addition to poetry, was cartography. So she was able to take the girls' education of geography and have them drawing maps. 
That is pretty cool. Yep. And Mama Elizabeth was able to keep Charlotte out of the limelight of court for the most part. Their life as a family was still very tight and very family and home-centered, although Charlotte did once a week get to be all dolled up, go to church, and then take fancy carriage rides around town. That was the fancy highlight of her weeks when she was a young child. In the slightly wider world of Europe, Empress Maria Theresa, not yet delivered of our friend Marie Antoinette, and Frederick the Great of Prussia were fighting a war over territory. Speaking of keeping the peace, and the fighting just was whipping back and forth across poor old Mecklenburg Strelitz and all of these little principalities up here. I mean, money got requisitioned, men got drafted into their armies. As happens all over when there's a war, the crops are trampled, there was lots of looting, people's pigs were stolen, you know, that kind of thing. And there has been a I don't know what you would call it, a legend tacked on afterward to Queen Charlotte Mm -hmm. that she once wrote a note to Frederick the Great, basically asking him to please think of these little principalities who don't have the resources he does and they beg on their knees that he as their father would intercede on their behalf and and help them to, you know, basically the pursuit of happiness and to feed their children and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Oh, even just the beginning of this alleged letter that she wrote, if it may please your majesty, I'm at a loss whether I should congratulate or condole you on your late victories since the same success, which has covered you with laurels, has overspread the country of Mecklenburg with desolation. That's quite an opening line from a young woman writing to a le- world leader. <laughs> Yes, alas, no confirmation that that was ever the case. It's a very cool story, though. However, I will tell you, Frederick the Great did lay down the law to his men about the looting, especially, and um, the despoiling of fertile cropland, etc. And I'm certain there were hundreds of, uh, if not complainants, petitioners. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I love the fairy tale aspect of this letter that in the myth over in England, a young George saw this letter, read it and decided that that was to be his queen. And he sent people out to search the land, you know, like Cinderella, trying to find where the quill fits. (laughs) I'm like, where the quill fits? I don't know about that. (laughs) Not sure we should talk about the quill fitting. Okay. (laughs) Whose hand matches this writing? That's better. Okay. (laughs) Well, now that we have talked about him, I would like to travel 710 miles almost straight west for a minute to London and set up another backdrop to our story. The King of England in 1760, the same year Charlotte, quote, wrote that letter to Frederick of Prussia, was a 22-year-old man. George III came from a spectacularly dysfunctional family. (laughs) And how did his family even end up on the throne? Queen Anne, despite 17 pregnancies, had had no direct heir. It was not for lack of trying. During the act of settlement to determine who was to take hold in England, it had to be a Protestant. That's the problem. A lot of people were disqualified. The next heir available that was Protestant happened to be from the House of Hanover, and he became the king. 
The first two Hanover kings were non-English speaking, by the way. And they were also two generations of dudes that hated, and I mean hated, their firstborn sons and heirs. George I hated George II. George II hated his son Frederick. I mean, George I jailed the mother of his children. Mm-hmm. George II loved his wife, but his wife caught sight of her firstborn crossing the road and openly wished for him to die so that her second son could rule the country instead of him. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not good. It's not good at all. But just like Charlotte, George III's father had died early. Frederick, his father, had died when George III was only 13. So George III was exactly of an age with Charlotte's brother when he acceded to his duties, and he had also lost his father at 13. His papa, British papa, had been a devoted family man, despite, I mean, the generational hatred of his predecessors. And George III's early years were full of his parents' love and attention. But British Papa, when he died, was also only 44 years old. There were a lot of parallels in their upbringing. Both of their mothers had contrived to raise them largely nicely without their papas, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. We had talked a lot about George III's early years in the Elizabeth Chudley episode because Elizabeth Chudley was a maid of honor to George III's mother. So you can go back to episode 209 for a little bit more color to many aspects of this story. Here's a little brief description of our hero. He was educated to the hilt constitutional law, history, Latin, French, writing, fencing, several branches of science, including astronomy, economics, painting, music. He was an all-around excellent gentleman, also super-duper attractive. Hmm. Papa Frederick, who after my three whole months of Duolingo German, I want to call Friedrich, he had written his son kind of a missive on how to be a king. Frederick also wrote one for himself, which upon his death, his wife burned. But this particular one was directed to his son. It said things like, my design, he wrote to George, is not to leave you a sermon as is undoubtedly done by persons of my rank. Tis not out of vanity, I write you. This is out of love to you and to the public. It is for your good and for that of the people you are going to govern that I leave this to you. One of his primary things he wanted to make sure that George did was to convince the nation that you are not only English born and bred, but that you are also of English by inclination. So you have no ties to Germany as far as your heart is concerned and as far as your leadership is concerned is basically what he's saying. Um, He told them very practical things like decrease the national debt and separate from Hanover and stay out of European wars which is such wise advice. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry he wasn't along longer to, you know, raise up the next king, but he was able to leave him that. Grandpa George II hung on until George III was 22. George III had been offered his own establishment when he was 18 by Grandpa, and his mother said no, to which George III said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Unmarried and on the throne is not good, sire, not good. You also have only one living younger brother. This whole thing is hanging on by a thread. 
Now, George wanted to marry his lady love, Lady Sarah Lennox, age 15. Supremely beautiful and spicy, radiant, she's been described. But her family was Boleyn-like. Do you know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Like rubbing their hands together in glee at their future power. Oh, true. There were several instances where George III's mother, Dowager Princess Augusta, was scheming to get Sarah Lennox out of the picture because she had her own person she wanted her son to marry. And so she and her daughter, who was also named Augusta, and one of their friends were like doing these things that you'd see in like movies, you know, befriending Sarah and getting things that she knew they knew she was sensitive to and just pushing those buttons. So the 80s had their Heathers. Yes, right. And the 1760s had their Augustus. There you go. (laughs) So they are scheming. And then the family of Sarah is like, we're just going to follow him. They're sending him out on the road to keep him away from you. Let's just follow him. And oh, look, you're just going to appear right where he takes his daily ride. And you can see him and he can see you. And eventually this will happen. You know, they're both pushing poor George from both sides. The king back in Britain, to his credit, actually didn't have an extensive list of requirements. Physical beauty didn't matter to him. What mattered was that she was of good character, her and her family, that she was amiable, intelligent, and healthy for the production of heirs, and most importantly, not ambitious politically. As he said, he would have no, quote, petticoat government, or as I, Beckett Graham, say, no more petticoat government than he was already subjected to from (laughs) his mother and older sister, who actually got married this year and moved away. Hooray. Well, George was convinced by literally the state of his whole life, honestly, that for the good of the country, an alliance with Germany would be for the best instead of marrying a subject. Also, he, like his predecessors, was really sort of required to marry a Protestant. And Sarah Lennox had Catholic ancestry that went way back. To that end, a list was drawn up of between 9 and 28 German princesses. You'd think you could narrow this down um, (laughs) to choose from. And we've talked about this before, how the German principalities were basically the shopping mall for royal wives. You get all the bloodline, but none of the powerful male relatives that could be troublesome. Be careful what you wish for, princes of Europe, because no one knows this yet, except for us. But in two years, Princess Sophie Frederic Auguste of Anhalt-Zerbst would overthrow her husband and become Catherine the Great. So feel free to shop in the German principalities for unassuming young women, but but never put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> Anyway, to that end, one Colonel Graham, no relation, was dispatched to vet all of the ladies in question, whether there were nine or 28, only Colonel Graham will know. (laughs) There followed that unsuccessful candidate montage that we have seen in every mid-budget movie that we've ever seen in our (laughs) lives. Um, This one had too much smallpox. This one was too sassy. This one had a questionable family. This one had mm, moral character that wasn't the best. One after the other failed his scrutiny for reasons large and small. I like one was too philosophical, like she was too into philosophy. And that would mean that she wasn't faith led. And another one, her mother said, you don't want her. 
Now, I don't know if that was the mother being mean or if that was the mother protecting her daughter. Because seriously, who wants their daughter to go off to a foreign country and be queen and go through all of that? You know. Oh, the mother of the girl said you don't want her. Yeah, the mother of the girl said that you don't you don't want her. The list is now down to maybe four people. One of those people is 17-year-old Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. George eventually saw her profile picture and said, yeah, she looks like a good one. So Graham is re-sent out to keep an eye just on her, to spy on her. He comes back and he's like, well, I saw that she was loving to gamble. She loved playing cards. She was extremely competitive. But then when I saw what she did with her winnings, she just took them down into the village and gave them away and did things for people with her winnings from from gambling. So I guess we can't really count gambling as a sin here, right? Well, Colonel Graham caught up to them on vacation, which is super (laughs) awesome. And I'm sorry to say that her sister, Christina, at the ripe old creaky age of 25, was not even considered. She wasn't even on the list, not even the list of 28. Sorry, Christina. But the thing that was good about this encounter, other than the fact that he secretly saw her give things away, was that she was happy and she was relaxed and she was at her best. And, you know, this wasn't a formal meeting sitting down in there at home with a lot of pressure, like they know he's coming, There, there's going to be right. tea and the saucer will shake because of nerves and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he caught her at her best. Anyway, so Colonel Graham was a pretty ruthless judge of her beauty. You know what? It's part of his job to be honest. And if he's not going to be a painter, which we are not all painters, he had to be good at descriptions, right? And he called her small, but with a pretty figure. Her nose is very flat. Her mouth is very large. However, she has excellent white, even teeth. Her hair is beautiful and curling. Her eyes expressive and full of good humor and vivacity. All of her animation counters her physical defects. Which makes you wonder how Mr. Graham would describe me or you. I know. <laughs> you know, her hair with a wide streak of gray at the right temple made up for this defect by its waviness. I know. Right. I know. This letter that I think is interesting. You and I pulled out different things from his, you know, his report on her. But he said, I shall say of the princess, she is not a beauty, but what is little inferior, she is amiable and her face rather agreeable than otherwise. Does that sound like she is perfectly fine? (laughs) Just in case you don't find her attractive, I'm going to say this. It's rather agreeable, you know. (laughs) Okay. Well, so, and there's no photography. So, uh, you know, he had to do the best he could. And like I said, and to his credit, King George didn't really care about that. You know, and to his not credit, the... Mm, The reason he gave for not caring about it is no one is going to be prettier than Sarah Lennox. So it doesn't matter. (laughs) Sarah Lennox, who at this point is 15 years old. Yeah. (laughs) And by the way, she's going to get married in a couple years and then she's going to get divorced because of infidelity on her part. She even had a child from her lover. Well, we may have dodged a very spicy bullet. Very. I mean, whoever saw the red flag on her, I think we should give them credit. There is something that we have to talk about, and we may as well talk about it here. For fans of the Queen Charlotte prequel to everyone's favorite historical mm, soap opera, Bridgerton. I have to say the prequel's way better than Bridgerton. Susan, 
sort of agrees with me. <laughs> I know. I do. You know what? I do agree with you. I I loved the Queen Charlotte series. I loved it. Um, I really liked the other Bridgertons, and I've read some of the books, so I'm more of a fan, I think, than obviously oh, you are. I hate the Bridgerton <laughs> series, but I loved the Queen Charlotte series. So, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Where do I draw the line? Rough if up. you read the books, I know, I think I can come up with some phrases that would draw the line for you because I even had some issue with it. The heaving bosoms and I'm not going to say <laughs> throbbing members. I mean, you can't. They actually use, I'm telling you, Beckett. <laughs> They use this, that terminology, and I'm like walking and listening, and I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't be a little more creative than that? Well, I think that Richardson is deeply rooted in Georgette higher Regency romance novels. So oh. those are, are very nice, but since they were written in a more, at least overtly innocent time, they don't fall as deep into that particular rabbit hole as Bridgerton does. But it there's illusions. Yes. Well, you know, what is interesting is that Queen Charlotte is not in the books. Shonda Rhimes put Queen Charlotte in the series as a character, but not in, she's not in the books. So in that series, the character of Queen Charlotte is absolutely and unapologetically a woman of color. And there's a question. Was Queen Charlotte a woman of color? Now, a lot of this hullabaloo came from a historian in the 1980s named Mario de Valdes y Cocom, who traced Queen Charlotte's ancestry first to Margarita de Castro e Sousa, who is a 15th century Portuguese noblewoman, ancestress of hers, who is descended from King Alonso III and his Moorish lover, Madragana. Now, that is a stretch. I mean, that is 500 years of one ancestor who is maybe not even at all a person of color, or at least not a person of African ancestry at all. So it is, it is tenuous at best and a big historical lie is too strong of a word, um, wishful thinking. Yeah. I mean, I would have loved to have gone, especially during the Meghan Markle, you know, time when she was facing all that prejudice. It, You know, well, she still is. But, you know, they're like, well, we've had a black queen before. That's no big deal. It's something that's happened. And I would have loved to have said, yes, she was a black queen. That would have been awesome. But I, I, I can't support that. Moorish, like you said, that her ancestor was a Moorish woman. That just means that she was from a Muslim country. That's it. The show isn't trying to trick you at all. At the very beginning of it, they even say there's like a disclaimer. Julie Andrews does it as Lady Whistledown. Dearest gentle listener, this is the story of Queen Charlotte from Bridgerton. It's not a history lesson. It's a fiction inspired by fact. All liberties taken by the authors are quite intentional. King George made his choice and announced it to his public. 
to ensure the welfare and happiness of my people and render the same stable and permanent to posterity, I have, ever since my accession to the throne, turned my thoughts toward the choice of a princess for my consort. And I now with great satisfaction acquaint you that after mature deliberation, I am come to a resolution to demand, demand, in marriage, the Princess Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, a princess distinguished by every eminent virtue and amiable endowments, whose illustrious line has constantly shown the firmest zeal for the Protestant religion and a particular attachment to my family. And no one was more surprised about this than Charlotte. Charlotte was back home preparing to go into a convent to become a Lutheran nun, which I was surprised to find out is actually still a thing. There's not very many of them here in the United States. Um, the Lutheran colleges to have a program where the women come out as deaconesses and do basically what a nun does without, you know, the vows of celibacy and all that. Hmm. Um, it's a church worker job. But Charlotte's mother was very ill and dying, and Charlotte had to go somewhere. And since her faith was such a big part of her life, this seemed like a logical step. She had begun doing the things she needed to do to go away to the convent when people showed up and said, um, hey, <laughs> there's this king over in England who wants to marry you. That's where he demanded. But <laughs> now, mom was seriously on her deathbed when she agreed to this, and she died not long after. So between the official proposal and the the month later that the official party came to fetch her, her mother died in that little window. And I have to hope that she felt happy that her daughter had settled so well. Like that is a position that's you're going to be taken care of, mm -hmm. you know, financially, politically, um, your safety. You've got right. powerful men around you. And I mean, I'm sure she was worried. I mean, Charlotte didn't speak English. No. But everybody spoke French. It was going to be fine. So a month later, the official party, led by Lord Harcourt, came to seal the deal and bring the new bride home. And the first item up for bids after the signing of the contract was a marriage by proxy. Marie Antoinette also had the same exact scenario. I guess it was a legally binding ceremony mm -hmm. where a man stood in for the king. In Marie Antoinette's case, it was one of her brothers. That's super weird. Um, <laughs> but in Charlotte's case, it was um, the British sort of the envoy, the ambassador to Mecklenburg-Strelitz uh, asserted mm -hmm. his prerogative to do so. There was a literal wedding ceremony after which, this is the gross part, the bride laid down on a bed or perhaps a velvet sofa and the proxy bridegroom ceremoniously put his foot on the sofa between her legs to symbolize <laughs> consummation. It was, I mean, everyone was fully clothed. <laughs> I know, that's right. And, and now she was legally the queen of Britain or at least had that status upon her like a cape. You know, she could now travel with her new status. There was a great banquet. There were fireworks. There were gifts of alcohol to the common people. Hooray! <laughs> Part of that contract was that no member of Charlotte's family could contract a marriage with a British citizen. And I'm sorry to say that Christina, the firmly on-the-shelf Christina, and a visiting duke had fallen madly in love. I mean, really. Not just like, hey, you're very attractive. And you mm -hmm. also, no. This isn't disco love. This was like Thunderbolt City. Disco love. <laughs> but um, they were not allowed to marry um, due to this contract. 
Is it because of that influence again? You don't want the Belens or, you know, the Lennoxes or in fact, the Mecklenburg Strelitzes to have too tight of a grip on the ropes of power? I, yeah, I got nothing. I don't know. But I don't quite, I mean, I understand. I mean, they couldn't be Catholic either. I don't know. There's, there was a lot of rules. (laughs) Well, I will say neither of those two ever married after this. That's kind of a bummer. Anyway, um, leaving Christina and Mecklenburg Strelitz and everybody behind. Our Charlotte traveled in 30 coaches. Well, she didn't travel in 30 coaches. <laughs> she traveled in a coach <laughs> accompanied by 29 other coaches full of dignitaries, luggage, ladies in waiting, etc. Transported her. She was met all along the way with cheers and church bells. And she had some ladies to travel with, a few German ones she already knew, but two English duchesses had come all this way to escort her back. Charlotte boarded a ship. It had been the Carolina, and now it is the Royal Charlotte, named after her. She boarded the ship. She had a small entourage. She had her hairdresser, who she was allowed to bring. She was not allowed to bring a lot of people, from her country to England, but her hairdresser got a pass. She also had two Pomeranians with her, Phoebe and Mercury. Pomeranians from Pomerania, which, as we've discussed, is an actual place. Unlike the Bridgerton show, where she gets the dog and says it looks like a deformed bunny, she loves these dogs. So those came with her to England. It wasn't something... You know, this is one of those Shonda Rhimes made up parts. And you know what? Who else had Pomeranians was uh, Marie Antoinette. Yes, as did uh, Queen Victoria. Those little dogs. I don't know. I like a big dog. Yes. Well, that's what she says in the TV show. She said, a dog? Dogs are majestic. Oh, (laughs) poor Pomeranians. I know. They're just little fluff balls of yap. So there was a little trepidation. The ocean was choppy. The weather was threatening, but they were not allowed to delay and wait. You know, in this time and place, you could be sitting there waiting for favorable winds until, you know, months, but they they had to make it for a certain date. The wedding was only three weeks away and they had to get on the boat and they hit storm after storm. I Ugh, I would hate to think about a boat. I just like, you know, I know you're a boat person, Susan, but well, I nobody just... Nobody wants to hit storm after storm. People get sick. I mean, people always get seasick on boats, but if you're not even used to it, it's going to be worse. And it comes back with reports of her playing the harpsichord and practicing her English as her how she handled all these storms. But she also shows up in England like so many pounds later because she'd been sick on the boat. Oh, and those duchesses were chumming the water. Oh, the yeah. two English duchesses that came with her were like regretting their whole life. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she was too. Only no one had the nerve uh, yeah, to mention it. <laughs> so Charlotte arrived in England to a different kind of storm, that of super fan attention. Everywhere, everywhere there were eyes, everywhere there were cheers, everywhere local nobility gave her a dinner provided her road trip snack breaks. Um, one guy <laughs> gave her coffee and a box of, and I quote, candied Oringo root. And I thought, well, no, that's whatever. I don't know what that is. I looked it up. It's an aphrodisiac. Shut up. 
And I'm just like, what? And, you know, at the time, people looked at him with their eyebrows, too. And he said, any royal personage that passes through here gets a box of my famous Oringo root. And I thought, dude, also see the world's biggest squirrel, you know, or whatever. Right, right, right. right. Um, I just got salt and vinegar Pringles on my road trips. So she did a lot better than me. So as she was driving along and everyone was so happy to see her, she asked for the coaches to be driven more slowly so that everyone who wished to see her could do so. This may have been their only chance, you know, she didn't know. And she won hearts and minds with her smiles and her waves. And she also made them almost late for the already scheduled main event. When the carriage pulls up to St. James Palace, which is where the groom is waiting for her, it's reported that the color all went from her face because I think the enormity of what she was doing finally hit her when she saw the palace in front of her. And, you know, all just think of Downton Abbey, you know, all the servants outside, you know, the hoopla. When she descended the carriage and saw her groom for the first time, she knew he was king. She attempted to prostrate herself, you know, lay on the ground in front of him. And he kind of just picked her up in his arms and lifted her up. She had a gift for him. It was a snuff box. Charlotte had one vice, and that was snuff. She gave this snuff box to her groom, and he thanked her, but said that he didn't partake in it. And so she's like, oh, oh, no. So I guess I don't either, you know, handing her snuff box to one of her ladies, like, keep this away from me. A few days later, he did give her two snuff boxes, one with his portrait and one with hers, which basically said, you can snuff all you want. Well, also, he was probably like super excited. He'd probably been fretting, what am I supposed to get her? Like those husbands, they'll see the catalog, oh, ho. Uh-huh. Oh, ho, the cursed ice from Sonic Machine. She circled it. It was probably so happy for him to know what a good appreciated gift might be. Can you imagine him running back telling the goldsmiths, now, I need two, now. That's right. <laughs> and get used to it because we're going to be making more. I love it. It's always good to collect something when you want your husband to buy you a present. I think so. Not all gifts were as practical. In fact, the governor of South Africa had sent a gift. It was belated, so it didn't get lost in the shuffle of all the wedding gifts from nobility all over the world. But along came a gift for the queen's menagerie. The gift of, as they say, a zebra. (laughs) A zebra! How amazing, how artistic of an animal this is. And, you know, everyone came to see it. The guards got enterprising after a while. And while no one was looking, started charging money for people to come see it. That was not cool, dudes. No. <laughs> that was not cool. And they had this vision of zebras taking over for horses. No, <laughs> zebras are perpetually angry. And we went through a drive through zoo where you can roll your windows down and literally lions will be next to you. And they're like, oh, no, you're fine. We feed them. They're not going to be aggressive. Lions! But they're like, when you get to the chimp enclosure and when you get to the zebras, you have to roll the windows up because those people will come get you for the sheer joy of seeing you scream. (laughs) Zebras hate you, hate the earth you walk on, you know, and your little dog too. Right. (laughs) There is no telling a zebra what to do. So um, it didn't work out, but wouldn't that have been stylish and fashionable? And I read somewhere that somebody also gave her a pair of kangaroos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's later. She, he, they gave her kangaroos and she loved them, but kangaroos were extraordinarily prolific in their reproduction. And uh, she started having to give baby kangaroos away to people who came by for visits. 
Like, here, let me give you some lemon bread and also this kangaroo. <laughs> oh Can you imagine? And you can't really say no. No, no, no. And you you get this thing home that could kick nine kinds of crap out of you. <laughs> but she was so into science that she loved ha- all these animals. I mean, the menagerie wasn't just, you know, something mm, fake. You know, she really loved it. So it was not exactly a hammo, but it was sort of a hammo. And I actually think Kew Gardens, I'm, I'm excited to go there, but Kew mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the neighborhood around the house, which was torn down later, was actually kind of Haveny Hammo-esque. Right. As a, as a retreat. The White House. where And that's where the menagerie was. Right. Right. She was super nervous at meeting her husband and the nobles that were all there, but even more stressful as far as I'm concerned, is when she was escorted upstairs to meet her mother-in-law and all her sisters-in-law. Ah! <laughs> there was a job to do up there. A whole team of servants quickly had a fitting for the wedding dress, and they hurried to work on it while the royals went down to a state dinner, by which time she'd gotten, it seemed, her regular personality back and was sweet and cheerful or pretended to be, which is more likely the case. You know, when you're seasick, once you get on dry land, you're fine. Like, it's almost instantaneous. I'm not saying seasick. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Yeah. yeah, Overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and overcome. Yeah. By the whole event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Six hours after she met King George III at the gate, she was walking down the aisle toward him in a white dress with cloth of silver covered in seed pearls and a really heavy jeweled stomacher. That was a very, very heavy dress. And then added to that, a very, very heavy purple velvet cloak with a huge train. So heavy and so large, it caused sort of a wardrobe malfunction. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to figure the physics of this. So the cape was held on to her shoulders and it was so heavy it dragged her clothing down, which to me, it seems like it would be dragging down her back. Mm. I don't know. The way it's all scurrilous, she was half naked before the company. So I don't know what happened. (laughs) It was not ideal for one's wedding day, whatever it was. I think part of it, I mean, she had had her measurements sent forward to England so she could have a British wardrobe by the time she got there. And I think part of it was because she lost weight on the passage. And so the dress didn't fit to begin with, even though they were working on it. I mean, they didn't have a lot of time. That train was heavy. And I mean, it had to be carried by her 10 bridesmaids, 10 bridesmaids, all of whom she just met. Including one bridesmaid, Lady Sarah Lennox. Mm. Yeah, she's one of the bridesmaids. Mm -hmm. That's awkward. And I hope no one told Charlotte until later. I bet they didn't. I can't imagine. Well, would she have understood? Well, everyone spoke French. Spoke French, yes. Okay, teeny tiny trivia, rabbit hole, instant. There's a term called lingua franca, and it basically means a language that everyone around can sort of get along in, even though most of them aren't native speakers of said language. And it literally in Latin means French language. So during Charlotte's time, it seems like the lingua franca was French, in fact. But I would say now... These days, at least in the Western world, the lingua franca is probably English. Well, I will say that even though they're all, what, speaking French, during the ceremony, she said, Ikvil. Aw, yeah. I know. That's good. 
Yep. You know, we have this thing uh, in our house. I have this Richard Scarry book that is in three languages, German, English, and French. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly in German, as my parents bought it for me in Vienna. And there is a page. German is so close to English, it sounds like somebody's mocking you sometimes. And there's a the orchestra page, which, of course, my parents as orchestra musicians paused on a lot. It says, Vermachen Music. (laughs) (laughs) And so we say that all the time. Vermachen Music. Vermachen Music. You showed me that book when I started my three-month voyage on Duolingo in German. I found it much easier than starting French, and I used to be fluent in French. The number of times I've been very tart with Duolingo and said, how am I supposed to know if a mirror is a boy or a girl, and I don't think I should get penalized for this? I know. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I'm racing you to the bottom of Duolingo, by the way. I don't know if you're racing me, but I think I got back down to Amethyst. Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) I just do my one lesson a day um, and that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, There are sometimes I feel extraordinarily competitive and kept keep going. I kept blocking people because I am not competitive and I don't care what other people's scores are. And people kept being compared or comparing themselves and sending me congratulations. I was like, oh, systematically defriended everyone because I don't want comparison. I just want I just wanted the little game with the owl. I don't want all this mess. I know. I get it. (laughs) You you defriended me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fine. Which is absolutely fine. Let's just put it this way. Our scores were simply decoupled. (laughs) <laughs> you are still my friend. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, so after the wedding ceremony, there was a lengthy supper, and then it was off to bed. And I think there were probably witnesses to the getting into bed. If you've seen Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, you have a visual of what's going on, but there was no joking or or teasing, no humorous, like, you know props or anything. The bride had asked, you know, for dignity, please, I'm alone here. I'm young. I'm in a new country. And and really, the blessing was given and everyone left the room except George and, and Charlotte, which wasn't always the case historically, by the way. No. I'm going to leave that there. There were often witnesses, but there weren't in this case. Hooray! Yeah. When I read that, I was like, okay, I love you. That's awesome. And also, that isn't what happened in Bridgerton. <laughs> It isn't? No, they did not spend their wedding night uh, together. He went to Q. Oh, that was narrative economy because they had to make that storyline go faster. He presented her with Buckingham House and then left. And she was mad for days. Well, you know what? Real Charlotte didn't have days. She hardly had enough time to get a decent four-hour nap because... Her social duties began the very, very next day. So again, Charlotte doesn't speak English and the levies began. They could speak in French, but think about meeting hundreds of people that you've never seen before that are nervous to meet you and you have to, you have nothing to hook small talk on. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know anything about them, their lives, you know, you know nothing. <laughs> It's just like excruciating to an introvert to imagine the first, I don't know, four months of levies when you had to really dig down deep for something to say. Well, George had things to say because he told her, in addition to once again, you should stay out of politics, 
He also told her to be suspicious of everyone because people would try to use her to get to him. And he told her to never be alone with mother because she is an artful woman and would try to govern you. Mm. Yeah, he had his mom's ticket. The difference between the uh, Disneyland of Lester House that George grew up in and the mother that he has now, even though it's the same woman, how she's changed is just um, baffling to me. I think it is a matter of survival. And I think there's a Mm -hmm. protective instinct that has kicked in. Now, as a woman, Princess Augusta really had little power other than how she could influence the men in her life to behave. Right. Um, So she had had her son. He is now getting married. She has to hitch her influence wagon to another star. She's not going to get remarried. You know, her dear friend, rumored lover, people are still like, "Mm, I don't know about that. You know, anyway, that's the easiest rumor to post in a newspaper. Lord Butte. Mm -hmm. You know what that is? That is a way to reduce the influence and power of Lord Butte. Mm -hmm. If all he is, is, you know, that, then what is he really? He's a gold digger. He's nothing. Even if he was something that's definitely a way to make him nothing. It has very little to do with Princess Augusta herself. Right. It's all hatred of Lord Butte. Well, a scant two weeks later, after the wedding was the coronation, the country and the advisors had held off on George III's coronation until he was married. Isn't that something? And it was fraught with mistakery, <laughs> I guess I would say, um, I think in a glorious burst of irony. This coronation was stage managed by a man called the Earl of Effingham, and he did Effingham a lot of it up. (laughs) The gold state coach that had been ordered for this coronation, the one we just saw, by the way, if you watch the coronation, I did get up. I set my alarm. I watched it. You know why? Oh, yeah. Because it's probably the last coronation I'm going to see. These are some long lived ancestors that King Charles has, and I think we're in for I'm going to say this now. I almost think we might be in for 30 more years of King Charles. We better get used to it. Really? You're putting your quarter on 30, huh? Well, I mean, how old is he? He's in his early 70s. His parents lived into almost their hundreds. I mean, what what are we to think? As far as I know, he's not a big smoker. He's definitely a health food advocate. He That's plays true. polo, or at least did. He was an exercising fool. <laughs> and all those walking, all that walking it. in Wales. Yeah. So I don't know. I, you know, I don't know unless there is a comet or, or something. I don't know. Well, so the coronation, the coach wasn't ready and the royal couple were taken uh, in hand carried sedan chairs instead. Westminster Abbey had been quickly retrofitted with stands, three rows of them. So were the streets outside and both sets of stands were fitted with gutters to handle urinary runoff. That's all I'm going to say about that. So we had wondered. Sorry, I'm when, gagging over yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, we had wondered when we covered Elizabeth Chudley how one handles. Like, did you just not drink coffee like me on every road trip? Did you just become abstemious and not do it? <laughs> or did, was there other? Yeah, that's what that's what. The accommodations were, is a gutter to direct it away from other people's shoes. That's it. Yuck. People were so excited. They were cheering as the royal couple went in. The service, though, was long and poorly rehearsed. The officers forgot to bring a ceremonial sword of state. 
They forgot to arrange for chairs for the king and queen. No one knew what order things were supposed to go in or who was supposed to carry what or say what. The king lost a big jewel out of his actual crown at some point. The horns, the the heralds were not completely clear on what songs they were supposed to be playing Mm -hmm. at any given time. I will tell you, the thing that ran as if on rails was all the rest of the music, because that man, the man that controlled all the music, had been obsessively rehearsing his people for a week. So all of the actual choirs and other musicians other than the heralds were perfection. That's like basically the only thing that went great. Queen (laughs) Charlotte had a moment where she asked... I have to take a break. Like, God, I, I don't have a gutter. <laughs> like, well, there had been arrangements made for her, um, you know, behind a screen. She had a private potty and she ran around there desperate and found the prime minister parked up on it. Oh, love. <laughs> People inside Westminster Abbey couldn't hear anything. They couldn't hear when the sermon was happening. And they thought, well, I guess nothing's happening. And they brought out their picnics and started chatting and having a gay old time at the back of the hall. I don't understand. I mean, they had time. Grandpa King has only been dead for like less than a year. But they knew about when the coronation was going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. Well, a ceremony that should have taken two hours actually took six hours, and the king encountered Lord Effingham and was getting ready to speak sternly to him. And Lord Effingham might as well, might as well try some humor, said, I'm so sorry, sire. I promise you, I'll make sure the next one goes better. (laughs) And and then if you think about it, it means like when you're dead, because that would be when the next coronation is. And- Much to Lord Effingham's relief, the king thought that was hilarious and defused. Hooray! Until they got to the dinner, they're exhausted. Like, oh my gosh, we have just been through something. Well, then you get to the banquet, there's not enough tables. And there was lots of offense taken by certain segments of society that expected to be seated in prominent locations. I mean, the Lord Steward actually challenged one group of offended noble attendees to a duel because they wouldn't shut up about where their table was. (laughs) (laughs) One Lord Talbot had spent this year that everyone else was faffing around doing I don't know what gutter engineering, maybe, um, had trained his horse to walk backwards because you're not supposed to turn your back on a crowned king. And so he was going to go in with this glorious horse, say his speech, and then back out in the horse. Would, I mean, the horse would back out of the hall. Oh, impressive. Clap. Yay. It would have been the <laughs> highlight of the dinner. But the horse didn't get the memo. The horse thought, oh, we're in this building where I have been training to walk backwards. I will walk backwards. And so that giant, beautifully bejeweled horse walked backwards all the way down <laughs> between the tables and presented its booty hole to the king and queen. <laughs> the man was super embarrassed. And became a laughingstock. I know. Reenactments of the coronation and banquet, I don't know about with or without the horse, were um, (laughs) popular entertainments at theaters for weeks afterward. There were reenactments with actors and actresses and costumes. Speaking of the theater, there is a tradition that if the dress rehearsal goes badly, the opening night is going to be amazing. So let's (laughs) hope the coronation was the dress rehearsal. And that bodes well 
for their married life together. Well, it's time to settle in to our new daily life. Definitely privacy was a thing of the past, if it had ever existed in the first place. (laughs) She did have a few trusted German ladies that she had brought with her, but Charlotte entered this strange scenario where she was absolutely surrounded by noble British ladies who had all been strictly forbidden to befriend the new queen. She had been, remember... That Susan said, advised by her new husband to be very suspicious of friendliness. You got to keep a distance between you and your subordinates if you want to have any authority and prevent yourself from being manipulated. It sounds like he's coming from the trenches on that one. Mm-hmm. Some of these ladies had actually, I mean, there's no paranoia about it. Some of them had been specifically set on her as spies by her mother-in-law. Basically, the life 360. (laughs) You know, where are you? Who are you talking to? Right. Let me track you. Right. Well, and, you know, at this point, her mother-in-law, Augusta, is suspicious that her new daughter-in-law is going to usurp any power that the mother-in-law has, you know, and that she's going to be, you know, manipulative. But the fact is that Charlotte wasn't that kind of person. She took on her English. You know, she studied English. And as she got a little bit more fluent, she and George would sit together and read books in English. They're getting along great, like right from the get-go. They had a lot in common. Their personalities worked well together. Their marriage, the personal life, was very affectionate right from the start. But George was adamant and repeated, do not meddle in my state affairs. I have advisors for that. He had a lot to cope with. So you referred to the Seven Years' War. Here in America, we often call it the French and Indian War. That's just the name given to the North American theater of this war. Same war was raging over in the American colonies for one thing he was having to deal with. I'm going to jump ahead a couple years, but this conflict was how the British ended up with Canada. Mm-hmm. This is how the British ended up with a lot of territory over to the Mississippi River that our enterprising young George Washington had gotten a hold of in the Martha Washington episode. Also, this is the time that the Acadians were being forced south to Louisiana. You might know them better by their name, the Cajuns. This is when the Cajuns were being forced south into Louisiana. Plus, a young man was having to navigate the pressures placed on him by more experienced advisors with their own agenda. Also, his mother's friend, Lord Butte, And his mama tagged him him all the time with the you owe me baton, just from one to the other. People are bossing him around. Mama pressed him so hard for him to nominate Lord Butte as prime minister. And the public response was so negative that the young king was literally shocked by it. He realized that was a big Big mistake after he had listened to people he had trusted, Lord Butte and his mother, that he had damaged his political capital. And he also learned something about Lord Butte. When Lord Butte was removed from office, he became tart and distant and angry. So there is another example of, you know, keep your friends at 
arm's length because they are not all in it just to be your friend. So who needed all this in his private life? Not him. So as he worked diligently at matters of state, Charlotte undertook what was, after all, society thought, her primary role. As far as the country was concerned, the birth of an heir. The first baby came about a month before Charlotte and George's first anniversary. And it was a boy. Hooray! Yes. And they named him George Augustus Frederick. Unlike most previous royal births, that room was not full of spectators. Oh, everyone was summoned that needed to be summoned that had the right to be there. But even such a personage as her mother-in-law was required to stand in the anteroom outside with the door open. The only noble witness that was allowed in the room was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Everyone else, even her mother-in-law, had to stay outside and just listen with their ears and not look with their eyes. Well, you know what? Her mother-in-law should have been sympathetic to this because when she was giving birth, it was kind of like a hide-and-seek where she's going to have to give birth because her mother-in-law wanted to make sure that the baby came out of her, you know, was a legitimate child of Well, that's the reason for all those witnesses in the first place. I know. (laughs) So I would think, like, Augusta, her first child was born on a table (laughs) because they weren't ready for her. They had switched to a different palace. Oh, yeah. I didn't really cover that. Augusta, her husband's parents hated him so very much, and he returned the favor that when he discovered his young wife was in labor with their first child, he forced her into a carriage, which he made to drive at great speed as far away from the palace as possible. And he drove until he came to a royal residence and surprised everyone there. No one expected that. (laughs) There were no beds made. Somebody got tablecloths out of the linen cupboard and, and, and this poor princess. I mean, so she did not have a good experience. So yeah, you're right. Maybe she wasn't mad. I mean, we don't actually have any recollection of Augusta's response. She might have been perfectly fine. Right. Like at least she's in a bed. At least her husband is not making her go on a roller coaster right now. Right. So that's good. Also, she did not have a whole cadre of midwives. This was one of the first royal births in this country that was attended by a male physician. And in very short order, she gave birth to the spare, who they named Frederick Augustus. Like, there's other names out there, people. Uh, Very confusing. Yes. And then they tossed in another boy about a year or so after that. For the next 20 years of Charlotte's life, she's pretty much pregnant or having just given birth the whole time. Over the course of the first 20 years of her marriage, Queen Charlotte would give birth to 15 children, 13 of whom lived to adulthood. Now, you would think this would be certainly enough work for a person total. So, you know, there's the background of what's happening in the next two decades when everything else is going on. But St. James Palace and the royal couple hosted lavish entertainments twice a week, starting from right when she got there. There were formal levees and open houses. The first two children were born there at St. James, and then the whole entourage moved to Buckingham House, which is now, well, at least the site of Buckingham Palace. So that's where it is. The family also spent lots of time at Windsor Castle and a newly purchased and renovated palace at Kew called the White House. Queen Charlotte was described as, quote, sensible and cheerful, 
She was a haven for her husband. They genuinely fell in love, you know, after the marriage. He, unlike every other man in his whole entire family, up and down the line, never took a mistress after he was married. I'm going to tell you, Georgian courts were hotbeds of, of vice. <laughs> I mean, there was nonsensical malarkey happening all around you in plain sight all right. the time. Nobody could keep their crap together at any time. And he really, really relied on her and the serenity that she brought as relief from the pressures of all of that cockamamie activity outside of their little circle. Now, I don't know who influenced whom, or maybe their stars were 100% aligned, but they seemed like peas in a pod. They were both very generous to charity, really into looking into economy, if not exactly practicing it. <laughs> like they were interested in, you know, kitchen scraps and what happened to them and that kind of thing. He was like <laughs> bragging on her that she was able to be frugal. <laughs> right. In one of their four palaces. You know. So it's a little bit like, mm, okay, you just really haven't seen the world. But, no. but I get it. Uh, you know, the queen was also a great example of keeping one's cool. She kept her dignity and she worked toward gaining everyone's respect. And that is literally the same journey her husband was on. He had more difficulty because people were at him all the time. You know, he also felt perhaps I should be more of the boss than I feel like anyone is letting me be. So there was a lot of pushback for his assertion of his own rights also. He fell hard in love with her. And within that first year of marriage, it had been suggested that he go out of town for his health. He was having some health problems. And he said he wasn't going to go without her. He said, quote, nothing in this world could make me go without her. I know that the loss of her that I have now would break my heart. But I think she was a calming influence on him. And yes, frugality jokes aside, she did manage to make a home with their family. You know, they had lots of time together. George played with his kids and uh, Charlotte was in charge of their education. She was involved. She did a lot of things that were very Montessori, I thought. Uh, she taught her own children to read. Now, at this point, she's already learned English. But she taught her children to read using like little, it sounded like Scrabble squares almost, which sounded very hands-on Montessori. Yeah. She made things more of a game. And the, the governesses that she brought on were the same way, very progressive in their educational uh, methods. Let's learn geography by drawing a map or whatever. Same things that Charlotte had done when she was a kid. One thing that uh, Queen Charlotte had said, and this is just an indicator of that progressiveness, she said, quote, I am of the opinion that if women had the same advantages as men in their education, they might do as well. I actually think we heard that a lot Sassy. from the first wave feminists. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that we're inherently stupid. It's right. that we have not been given the chance to develop our minds. And so we'll always remain infants. Mm -hmm. intellectually, because no one has allowed us to feed our minds with anything. Right. right. Well, she's feeding her daughter's minds as much as her son's. One of the things that helped in this is that this whole family from top to toe had a stable 
governess named Charlotte Finch, who ran the children's day-to-day, the (laughs) increasing day-to-day, you know, she had a new one every year. The increasing responsibility of Miss Charlotte Finch meant that she had, of course, assistant governesses, nursery maids, chambermaids, etc., a whole staff to manage. But here's what's important for the children. The two Charlottes, noble and not noble, got along very well and agreed about the upbringing of the children. And I love this picture that sometimes you would find the younger children climbing all over their royal father on the floor Mm -hmm. while their royal mother laughed and knitted socks. And some of the little sisters were drawing everybody at play. Some of the nobility didn't really appreciate this. And I read a quote that said, the royal family's recluse life disgusts many people. (laughs) Like, I think they're expecting a young and at least half of the couple was extremely attractive couple to bring a little zazazoo into the court. And they just plain old did not. Right. Well, and mother-in-law Augusta was trying to push more formality than Charlotte would have been comfortable with. At court, eventually Charlotte adopts this for herself, big champion of formality. But at the beginning, you know, she just wanted that family life and her mother's laws, you know, no, you have to appear here and there and you have to wear this and that. And, you know, you represent the royal family. You have to be bejeweled all the time. Again, that hippy dippy mom from Lester House has left the building, replaced Although by I, Augusta. I will say... Something interesting that is reflected in the Bridgerton prequel. So fashion about this time, maybe we've got a decade, but I'll just Mm -hmm. say it here. Fashion is easing up. You remember Marie Antoinette and her white gowns, you know, loose gowns were going to wander the gardens, quoting poetry at each other, blah, blah, blah. Like a very more informal garment. And you see it in Bridgerton. The waists go up, the material gets looser, it's all white. Charlotte never really adopted the new fashions. She kept the fashions of her youth, which were more Baroque, Rococo fashions. Tight corset, panniers, looped, you know, layers of garment. And you'll note high hair Mm -hmm. instead of poet hair with a ribbon threaded through it. You'll notice they kept that in Bridgerton. Right. Also, everyone else is... Everyone else is Emma Woodhouse, you know, from Jane Austen. But Queen Charlotte retains the fashions of her youth. Mm -hmm. That's true. That is true. In 1765, in which our heroine is only 21, her husband became uh, overwhelmed, overwrought. He had a breakdown, a breakdown that alarmed his mama and Lord Butte to the extent that they kept Queen Charlotte and the children away from him. And to people that were devoted and saw each other for many hours every day, it caused her great distress. And I don't, the timing seems to be around the time she's expecting her third child, who ended up being a son, but that's beside the point. I don't know if that's why they wanted to keep her from him. They wanted to keep the knowledge from her that this was happening. Nevertheless, he had a little spell that's a little foreshadowing for later, snapped back out of it, but... Parliament started to think, wait a minute, there's no plan if George III goes down. There's no plan for a regency of a king that's not dead and is not a minor. Mm -hmm. There's not any legal way to deal with this. And so 
traditionally, this might be the queen. So, for example, when the king left, Eleanor of Aquitaine would just handle the business. But that's when he left physically out of the country. What if he leaves just mentally and he's still there? So they needed to hammer that out. Everyone says it ended up being Charlotte as the regent, but I went and read this document and it seems to be that it's the queen, the dowager queen, or, and I quote, another descendant of George II who lives in Britain, which the king will nominate, which seems like a circular situation. Yeah. Mother-in-law Augusta and Lord Butte were not all that much in favor of Charlotte being the regent. You know, they were playing political string pulling behind the scenes to not have this particular regency bill pass. So I'm wondering if that's like a concession that they threw in. I have nowhere to, no reason to say this, but speculation. Well, I will tell you, there was a giant faction that was afraid that Lord Butte would get the helm Right. Through the auspices of the queen mother being the, you know, nominal regent for mm-hmm. her son. And so they were actively trying to prevent that. They hated the thought of that. So there's people working at cross purposes and they really didn't get a very good bill passed. No. That was clear. So George recovered, you know, hooray, before any of this had to be even hammered out, really. In the world, we've covered this, the, like the American side of this, we've already covered in the Abigail Adams podcast, in the Martha Washington podcast. But what's happening right now, the Stamp Act, the Intolerable Acts, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, like all this is happening at a great distance. It's kind of muffled. Mm -hmm. It's definitely muffled for the population of England, who hardly thought about it at all, really. Well, and how much did Charlotte think about it? I mean, obviously George did, but... You know, she was not even interested in being part of politics. So how much was she paying attention? The closest she got, she began a correspondence in 1770 with the brand new Queen of France, one Marie Antoinette, also a German princess. They never met in person, but it really does a body good to have a peer to talk Mm -hmm. to, even though you have to really be cautious about what you put in your letters because everything gets back to everybody. Right. Well, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, it would have been nice if they had had, you know, a private group on Facebook, but you have to be really careful of what you put on private groups of Facebook because anybody can get their hands on it. You know, same thing. It's funny how things really never change. (laughs) (laughs) Well, both George and Charlotte were avid fans of the theater. They went to the official theaters. They went to friends theaters. You know, those Things like in Mansfield Park that you get up out of a script and some blankets. (laughs) They love nothing more than to have new plays read to them, almost like stage readings, which are so fun, by the way, where the actors aren't off book yet. They're just reading from a script and you get to see it. It's like behind the scenes. It's so exciting. They loved it. He had his own orchestra. So did she. But if you think about it, do you know, younger listeners, what a jam box is? I'm interested to know. They didn't have a jam box. They didn't have an MP3 player. They didn't have a phone. They didn't have a record player or any way to play music other than to ask the conductor to, oh, I want to hear that lovely song by Ed Sheeran, you know, right? <laughs> whatever. Um, No. So they had to have live music all the time and they did. They loved it. They also brought baby Mozart to play for them and possibly his sister, Nanero. <laughs> he was um, just eight at the time, and he and Charlotte played a duet. Mm-hmm. And she is taking singing lessons from Johann Christian Bach, who is the son of 
Johann Sebastian Bach. She's taking singing lessons from a Bach. And her husband is a super fanboy of Handel. Right. And he's got all the albums and the T-shirts. And he's rich enough to have Handel come at his parties and play. Like if you were to hire some major band to play at your birthday party on a yacht, (laughs) this is the level they can get any music they like, basically. But live Uh, frugally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cut those corners where you can. So within her rooms, Queen Charlotte monitored, but barely participated in any gossip or intrigues. She kept an ear out, but she was a lot like I heard Steve Carell is. Steve Carell, the nicest man in Hollywood. They were trying to draw him in to a conversation about someone like really dastardly, like Putin or somebody. Uh And all he would say is, wow, if half the things they print about him are true... My goodness. And then he went to his trailer. He would not be drawn. Well, that is Queen Charlotte. Well, like, my goodness, that is certainly a thing. You know, she would not be drawn. No one could get her to misstep in that way. Super good. She was very sensible. Um, Her husband loved nothing more than to teach her to do something, to watercolor. I kind of wondered, did she teach him to embroider? Because for her, that would have been natural to teach a man and her, you know, to embroider with a man. I love it. I love the coziness. I I love the lack of drama. It doesn't make for a very good movie, except no. for the madness part, which comes later, which overshadowed all this. I know. Plain, like they are the J.C. Penny of relationships. Like That's think right. of nothing. <laughs> That's true. I and I just always think it's so interesting that let's look at Hamilton the musical for a second. You know. King George is the funniest character there is because he's spiraling into insanity. But during that era, he wasn't. You know, he had that one episode and that was it. That's right. And it's almost colored by later. It's for purposes of comedy. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's always said, well, the colonies went to war with Mad King George. Well, he wasn't Mad King George, you know. He might have been a little upset, (laughs) but that's about it. He was American mad, not British mad. That's right. (laughs) Well, the whole family loved simple food, hardly drank. They loved exercise. They loved reading and study, or at least the parents loved all this and (laughs) imposed this on, you know, the family vibe, as we shall see. They were people of quiet charity. That was the name of the game. Both of them gave approximately half of their income to charity. Often anonymously, you know, she would give things away, money away, and nobody ever knew. She actually provided for the daughters of a hundred killed military men from the age of five through 18, a hundred girls she provided for. She provided widows' pensions, mostly anonymously. And she also helped her own family, her own family of birth. But she was very, very careful to only give from her personal money, only give things which weren't jealously guarded by the establishment in Britain, things that um, would cause no offense and could not you know, make people accuse her of nepotism. Right. And she's still very close with her, her siblings. You know, there's still visits, not to, right. for her, but for them coming to visit her. And they're not doing it, you know, to get political favors from their you know, their brother-in-law, they're just coming to visit their sister. Now, other than the death, and this is a big deal, but the death of George III's mother, Augusta, in 1772. Yeah, mother-in-law Augusta's death at the age of 52 was 
bad. She had throat cancer and she refused treatment. She just kind of locked herself up and was just in a lot of pain. She also was not really well liked by the common folk. And when she did pass away, the people kind of cheered and her coffin was spit on at her funeral. She might be the villain for us at this point, but she's really not leaving, you know, a nice taste in the mouths of the common people. And here's the sad part. I, despite her machinations with her son, who actually doesn't seem to really resent it, Mm-mm. you know, he's tired of it, but, you know, it's more like, oh, I think it was the press hyping up their hatred of Lord Butte. You have to use Princess Augusta in that way. And, you know, right. if all you read is that side and royalty had this policy of not getting in the trenches and fighting out the libels of these people and whatever, you know, all the common people here is that there's like hoary happening mm-hmm. and in proximity to the king and, and which may be directing the course of their lives in their country. And that's not good. You don't want to think that that's what's, you know, your whole life is hinged on somebody's like boyfriend's mood swings or something. So anyway, I think she was tarred with the brush that was a little too broad. She was no like she wasn't lovely. She and her daughter Augusta were spicy and perhaps a little mean girl-esque, but I don't think she deserved to have her coffin spit on. No. Mm -mm. Their family was in a relatively serene bubble, really, but... Outside, things were popping off. The French and Indian War, or if you like Ender-British, the Seven Years' War, had cost a lot of money. There had been a series of bad harvests. There were rising food prices, significant unemployment. The Navy was even discharging men to save money now that the war was over. As well, and this is something I didn't know until I started researching this Um, subject, there was also the issue of no taxation without representation in Britain. Also, parliamentary representation for some powerful towns that didn't have a member of parliament to speak for their interests. Men of, quote, movable property. So landowners could vote. But what about doctors? What about merchants? They're certainly men of property, but they couldn't vote. That's out of control. We wanted the vote too, or else why are we paying all these taxes? Mm -hmm. And also, why weren't the American colonies help paying for their own protection? We spent all this money to, quote, save them from the, and I'm quoting again, I wouldn't say this, the savages, and they didn't pay a penny. And, And I think they need to pitch in. Why are we pitching in? We're not over there in danger. We covered the U.S. side of this quite thoroughly. Yeah. In several other podcasts, so we won't go into it here, but also we've all heard Schoolhouse Rock by now, you know, (laughs) about things like that. Let's just say America was not pleased, and America has sent the Olive Branch petition, laying out their grievances and kind of um, couching it in language. Surely you just don't know how bad your officers have been treating us here. You, in your infinite wisdom, would not allow your subjects to be treated this way. Now that you know, we hope you will act, love the following signatories. You know, they they tried this last throw before hostilities. And I have read that George III, rather than being the Hamilton guy with the best, the only good song. Oh, did I say it out loud? <laughs> I think you said that out loud before. <laughs> yeah. He sort of didn't realize how serious things had gotten until then, really. 
I mean, he really paid attention after. Actually, someone said he was the best informed official on the progress of the war after it had been declared. He was like interested in all details. He combined things. He made maps. He was very, very informed afterward. But before, he sort of didn't fully understand. And it was kind of unprecedented that a whole group of people would suddenly be like, you know what? We're trying to tell you something, Chachi. <laughs> and and he wasn't completely taking it in. So um, like the Boston Tea Party was just impudence. You know, how, how dare they be emotional? That's what I would expect of colonists, you know. So Parliament itself was busy at home, not with dealing with what was happening in America, at least not fully, because they had other things on their mind. The scurrilous trial of Miss Elizabeth Chudley, the Duchess Countess, who used to be a lady-in-waiting to the king's mama at the palace and was accused of bigamy of marrying her duke while her secretly married count was alive and well. Now, we have covered this in episode 209. Those stands were built again, ostensibly with the useful urine gutters in place. Maybe they had them saved from last time. Maybe. Even Queen Charlotte, no lover of drama, scandal, or gossip was drawn to attend. We will refer you to that episode. We'll put it in the show notes to this podcast. And uh, no spoiler here for that coverage. But rather than deal with what, well, at least proactively, with what ultimately would be the loss of 2.5 million subjects, <laughs> 500,000 square miles of territory, and 43,000 British lives... It was all, hey, did these two ne'er-do-wells secretly get married in the dark of night or didn't they? It's so much more fun to follow that. Yes, yes. Well, there are other places, of course, to learn about the Revolutionary War. Um, there are other places to learn about George III's role in it. His hiring of Hessian mercenaries, you know, he is a German man. And that is where Charlotte kind of did get involved in politics. And it's well known that she was very concerned about her former countrymen being sent over as mercenaries into this war. You know, she did ask him questions about it. She was worried. Right. So that's what she was involved in. But the other stuff, not so much. He discovered that George Washington had plans to kidnap <laughs> kidnap Charlotte's third son, William, <laughs> while he was serving in New York. By the way, George III, though, was, after this conflict had started, quote, the best informed chief executive Britain has ever had. He was processing knowledge on an industrial scale. That last comment was straight from the BBC um, special on on George III and his involvement in the Revolutionary War. So he was dealing with that. He was obsessively charting, mapping, talking to his officers. You know, he hated the fact that it was happening, but now that it had happened, he wanted it to go the way he needed it to go. I mean, we, we can't let this just happen. What, you know, what reputation would we have? Meantime, Charlotte had, during our Revolutionary War, she had five more children. So that's what she was doing. That's <laughs> But America was lost at the end. You know, we'll give you some links to follow if you want to follow the course of action back and forth. George III tried to make the best of it and wrote, One hopes we may have a more profitable relationship with America as friends than when they were our colonists. Oh, what could you do? Hmm. What could you do? 
Catherine the Great helpfully said that she herself would resort to self-harm if she ever got embarrassed like that. To which I say, why don't you give me a giant kiss in the middle of my gluten-free menu? (laughs) Because it's none of your business. (laughs) Yeah. And literally, he is not a despot. He is not an absolute monarch. There is a parliament that has the most of the responsibility, you know, and it's not his fault. It's been happening since Charles II. George III did draft a letter of abdication, by the way. He ended up thinking better of it, but here is some of the text that was first made public in 2017. A long experience and serious attention to the strange events that have arisen has gradually prepared my mind to expect the time in which I should no longer be of utility to the empire. That hour is now come. I am therefore resolved to resign my crown and all the dominions appertaining to it to the Prince of Wales, my oldest son, and air. And there's more to it, but did we know that that had been drafted? You know, people knew, but the public didn't know until 2017. Yeah. And when it was digitized, really. I would like to step back a little within the war years. In 1780, this actually relates to our TV show in Uh a very intimate way. In 1780, as a birthday present for his queen, The king produced, or had produced by hired people, the first Queen Charlotte's Ball in which debutantes were presented to the court. Presented at court. This this money that they paid to be presented at court went to a maternity hospital, um, which now is Queen Charlotte and Chelsea Hospital. At that ball, she was pregnant. Again, or still, I guess we could say, and the debutantes would come up and and curtsy to her and the cake that was next to her. It became a tradition every year that, like in the TV show, this was the big ball that started the season. So in Bridgerton, which the, the OG Bridgerton refers to this, so you are presented at court to the sovereign and you are now, quote, out and available for marriage. And this is where Charlotte's uh, inclination to dress old-timey kind of plays in because she insisted that the girls, even as time and fashion went on, still come in the big hoop skirts, all the layers, old-fashioned-wise. This went on, this ball, until 1958. The sovereigns kept up this tradition, but Queen Elizabeth II canceled the court-sponsored event that year. I love how Princess Margaret, Queen Elizabeth II's sister, once said, well, everybody's getting in now. (laughs) Like, it doesn't even mean anything. So for whatever reason, it was canceled at that time. Although the actual name Queen Charlotte's Ball not only went on until 1976, but has recently, I think as of 2011 or 2012, been resurrected. They're not presented at court, but it's a whole circuit of debutante balls. Right. Still. I fell down a little debutante ball rabbit hole. I was curious about what the first black debutante balls were, and the answer kind of blew my mind a little bit. What is considered the first debutante ball, which doesn't exactly explain it to me, but this is how it's gone down in history. It was held in New York City two years before Charlotte's Ball in England. 
And it was where uh, wives of free black men serving in the Royal Ethiopian Regiment would have a party with the wives of British soldiers. Oh, yeah. And then the actual first lady gets presented into society, black debutante ball, the way we think of it, didn't happen until 1895. So another 100 years or so later. And where was that? New Orleans? Yes, it was. In 1895, it was in New Orleans. You are correct. And now, friends, as we've brought you to a place where the fictional Queen Charlotte has dovetailed with her real-life counterpart in a ballroom, we're going to leave you here, and this will be the end of part one of our coverage. But never fear, we are actually working hard on part two. We'll not wait two weeks to release it. We'll release it the very hour that it is hot off the press. We'll be back at the regular schedule with a completely different person. And Queen Charlotte Part 2 will be released before that. And just how much of the fictional Queen Charlotte's life will be reflected in our story? Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about us. Especially if you have friends that are watching the Queen Charlotte Bridgerton prequel. And you feel like they would love learning the behind the scenes real story. We're going to leave media for the end of part two. I just wanted to let you know there will be a Pinterest board up for Queen Charlotte as soon as this episode is released, but there might be spoilers in there or people you don't recognize yet. So just be aware of that, I guess. And the song in the middle is by handle because I'm that kind of a deep diving nerd. The song at the beginning is as close as I could get to the way the Bridgerton theme song sounds using our licensing service so that I do not violate U.S. copyright law. And the song at the end is called Let's Hibernate by Emma Wallace. I just wanted to highlight with this song how cozy and comfy their family life was in part one. See you next time. When your umbrella is turned inside out by the uncivil wintry wind, there's no need to fuss, no need to pout. The solution is just to stay in and snuggle up so close to me, baby. I haven't a thing planned for the day. Come snuggle up so close to me, baby. We can come out again in May. The weather girl says it might even be storming. We ought to stay here and do things that are warming. Come snuggle up. So close to me, babe, let's hibernate When it gets dark, well before five And the general mood is grim When nobody else seems glad to be alive The solution is just to stay in And snuggle up so close to me, 
baby, plenty of treats to keep us well fed. Come snuggle up so close to me, baby. What is the reason to get out of bed? 'Cause outside it's cold, gray and gloomy, and under my blanket it's warm and it's roomy. So close to me, baby. It's so much nicer up close to me, baby. Come snuggle up, so close to me, babe. Let's hide.